physical distribution in retail was really aimed at access on the part of consumers. But today we live in a world, of course, where access abounds, right? I mean, I can I can sit at my kitchen table and pretty much get anything I want. So we have to ask ourselves now, in the cold, hard light of 2021, what's the role of a physical store? If it's not about just giving consumers access to products, access to brands, what's the value? Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Oglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our articles. This is The Backroom. Hey, Retail Dive readers, this is Daphne Howland, senior reporter. I'm here with an episode, an interview I did at the end of 2020 with Doug Stevens. Doug, as you know, is a retail consultant and futurist, author of many books, including one coming out in the spring, Resurrecting Retail, the Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. Usually, Doug is someone who is usually a globetrotter and... Um, I'm always hoping that he's in the right time zone when I try calling him. At the end of 2019, Doug and I had a lengthy conversation about the future of retail in 2020. Most of those predictions really didn't apply in 2020, of course, because a pandemic hit instead. I thought that Doug and I should reunite at the end of 2020 and take a look back what the pandemic has done, not just to the immediate present of retail, but how it's coloring his view of its future. So Doug, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. Well, thanks so much for, I feel like we have to revisit our conversation from 2019 with this year in mind. It's no longer about simply looking at a decade shaped by the previous years, I think a lot of things were accelerating anyway. Now this pandemic has been even more of an accelerant. So I just kind of wanted to, I glanced at our Q&A from last year, and I want to sort of touch on some things, although this is not about asking the same questions, because it's the kind of year where you really can't even ask the same questions. I would say, let's start off. Last year, you said the industry is at the end of the beginning of e-commerce. What do you think the pandemic has done to that? Yeah, so great question. Wow, little did we know, huh? At the time that we had that conversation, that the whole retail industry would be upended. I, I think w- w- what I meant at that time, and I and I would suggest to you that I would I will double down on it now, is that. We, you know, if you look at the the e-commerce market, and and I mean, let's let's dispense even with the term e-commerce. Let's just call it let's just call it digital retail. If you if you look at the digital retail market today, it's about a three trillion dollar total. That's that's what's being transacted online globally. But what we also know is that the opportunity out there is about twenty seven trillion dollars of remaining retail activity, goods and services that are not transacted through digital channels. So there's this massive opportunity. And so when I say we're at the end of the beginning of e-commerce, I think that the threshold that we have crossed now is we've taken care of the easy stuff, the stuff that lends itself being sold online, right? Um, you know, Amazon began so many years ago with, with books. 
not because they were necessarily Jeff Bezos's endgame, but because they were easy. They were they were easily indexed, they were easily referenced, and they were relatively inexpensive things to ship. And since then, we've covered a lot of ground, and yet there's so much left. And I think the pandemic has truly accelerated our progress across that threshold. And I say that because on the one hand, this has been like a, a 10-month steroid drip for companies like Amazon. They've been the beneficiaries of a once-in-a-century event that has just absolutely propelled their growth to, to new levels. And that's great, especially if you're Jeff Bezos and you're, what, what is his net worth now? $160 billion or something like that. One thing that makes me think as you're speaking about that is it's not just about the level of e-commerce, but almost what retailers are participating in e-commerce, at least here in Portland, Maine, where I'm based, there were extremely small mom and pops who were entering the e-commerce space for the first time, allowing Instagram sales or website sales, curbside pickup. I mean, actually doing things that they never thought that they would do. Is that what you mean by the middle or... So, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, Amazon has, at the same time as they have been beneficiaries of the crisis, they have also now watched the entire retail industry catch up. They've, they've watched the retail industry make up ground in an incredibly compressed period of time. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Amazon now has to come out of this crisis. And it's not just Amazon. It's Amazon, it's Alibaba, it's JD.com, it's Walmart. And you could argue that there, there are others, but they are now coming out of this pandemic or will be at some point. And the question will be, how do we now keep up this inordinate level of growth? How do we continue to satisfy shareholders who have seen this company expand so vastly over a short period of time? And my belief is, Daphne, that they are now going to be looking for much higher nutrition food sources. They are going to, yeah, I mean, sure, there's a long runway for more subscriptions, more running shoes, more apparel, more groceries, et cetera, et cetera, electronics, the, the easy stuff. But I think now they are going to take on categories that we wouldn't have been talking about two years ago, healthcare, education, transportation, banking insurance, incredibly lucrative categories that are also vulnerable to disruption because they, they tend to be gated oligopolies that are relatively resistant to innovation or change. So I think that that is the new frontier of growth for these companies. And that is what is going to take Amazon from being a company that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars to several trillion dollars potentially. I can absolutely picture that. Amazon has always said that they want to be indispensable to the consumer, and that's certainly one way of doing that. What you describe, though, to me is not a retailer exactly. It's, it's not something that Macy's would do or Target would do. At the same time that Amazon is talking, is actually not just talking about getting into healthcare, but it actually has done it now with their pharmacy operations. They're opening stores, and you've talked a lot about stores. You have some very interesting ideas about what the role of stores are and should be. What do you think remains the role of stores now that we've had a year where we maybe learned what stores we can do without and maybe what stores we need? 
and another great question. So just just to sort of saw off on the last point too, the, my, my point in raising the specter of all of these other categories that Amazon will penetrate, and you're quite right. I mean, they launched their online pharmacy last week. That was really the ninth major initiative over three years aimed at healthcare. They are now a healthcare player. And just on the announcement of the online pharmacy initiative, the stock value of CVS and Walgreens dropped by 10% on the announcement. Right. So it shows you how vulnerable some of the players, some of the incumbents in these categories are. In terms of the role of stores, you know, to answer the question, sometimes to answer questions about the future, it's worth looking at the past. And the fundamental question that I've been asking for some time now is what was the historical role of a physical store? The physical store, third party distribution, retail distribution networks as we know them today were a product of the Industrial Revolution. They were the product of a time when in order to reach customers at scale, brands now had to turn to third party distribution in order to distribute their products into these massive and growing largely urban markets. And so that was sort of the genesis of the physical store as we know it today. And to be successful in the physical store business, all you had to do was essentially avail access for consumers to particular brands or products or services in their market. And you could be reasonably successful if you didn't do anything stupid along the way. And so the physical, physical distribution in retail was really aimed at access on the part of consumers. But today we live in a world, of course, where access abounds, right? I mean, I can, I can sit at my kitchen table and pretty much get anything I want. So we have to ask ourselves now, in the cold, hard light of 2021, what's the role of a physical store? If it's not about just giving consumers access to products, access to brands, what's the value? What, how are we adding value through, through physical retail? And my belief is that what we're actually seeing is a, a historic transference of roles between media, which was generally bought in an effort to drive consumers to a point of distribution, and physical stores, which sort of sat at the bottom of the marketing funnel, just waiting for that media to pay off and for consumers to come storming through the doors to buy products. And these two roles have now reversed. Media in every form is now becoming the store. And Alibaba is proving this every single day with, with this myriad of shoppable media formats that they are putting into the market. So as I watch the fashion show, I buy the garment. As I watch the video about the new uh, you know, electronic item, I buy it right there in the moment. Live streamers in China are selling millions of dollars of product a day through, through live streaming. So, I mean, media is in spades now becoming the store. The question then remains, what's the role of the store? And my belief is the role of the store is to act as a media channel for brands. It, it is to add value through experiences and experiences are at their essence, simply content, physical, digital, sensory content. And retailers can add value by giving consumers that content experience when they come into the store. So in a weird sort of way, these two things have shifted roles and responsibilities in the digital age. So that means we still need physical stores, but we sure as hell don't need them anymore just to give consumers access to products. They need to create new value. So does that determine not just how you merchandise a store or even design a store, but where you locate a store? Does that mean that 
high streets or tourist downtown tourist areas in big cities or malls? Is there a mixture there? Or is that role of the store possible in any geographic location? Good question. So I, I think it, it really changes everything. You know, I think, and, and we, we work with retailers to this effect, you know, to get them, once you get a retailer over to the idea that they're not building stores, operating them, measuring them, managing them, staffing them simply for the distribution of products, but the store itself is a media experience that you are hoping to use to engage consumers and to, to truly galvanize a relationship with them and draw them into your brand ecosystem. As soon as executives start thinking about physical stores in that light, all of the things you just mentioned change. Where we locate our stores, who we choose to be, to be working in those stores, how we manage them, merchandise them, et cetera. All of those things, and, and most particularly how we measure the output of those stores, not simply by virtue of how many products we sold that day, but by how many positive media impressions we created for our brand. Retailers that have come over to that way of thinking are succeeding today. And those that still look at their physical stores as being a distribution mechanism for products alone are having trouble. Just as a practical matter, it sounds like a little bit of a nightmare for, say, mall landlord who might be basing part of the lease on sales from a store. But I mean, some retailers already have gone down this road, like Bonobos and Nordstrom, where they have locations that don't have product and don't, they aren't in the business of selling anything. They, are, they provide services. They are sort of, in Nordstrom's case, at least in one of their locations in New York, they really seemed like, they seemed like they were a member of the community, you would think that they had been there for decades instead of what I think was maybe five weeks when I got there. So I think there are probably different ways of being that touch point, that that medium that might be different for a department store like Nordstrom or the kind of story magazine approach that from that store in Chelsea, which I don't think now that Macy's took it over and then shut it down, I don't think that exists anymore, actually. Yeah, I mean, how it plays out in the market can vary. It's less, I think, a restrictive sort of notion of, you know, here's how you build a store as media. I think there are different iterations of that. We've seen them. You mentioned Story. Story's a great example. Beta. Another another great example where they said, well, wait a minute, you know, all these interactions that consumers have with us, with products, with our stores, that's data. That's data that has value and we can we can monetize that data. You know, others like Nike have said, on the one hand, you have a, a media experience that is Nike House of Innovation. This, this is a sort of mind blowing over the top experience. But hey, we could also translate that down to a local level with Nike by Melrose, which is a much, much more intimate, small scale connected, and yet every bit as personalized and, and, and experiential as uh, the House of Innovation, but just in a different way. So I don't necessarily view this as, as any sort of hard and fast construct around this is, this is the way that has to look in the marketplace. I think it's more sort of a philosophical realization that if all we are doing is building stores for the distribution of our products, we are wasting 
we're, we're number one, we're wasting these opportunities to really treat consumers to something differentiated and unique in the market by way of an experience. And two, we're not really recognizing the full value of that point of distribution in the marketplace. You know, it's funny to me that brands will often agonize, I mean, agonize over media programs. You know, if you want to, you want to get a bunch of executives in a retail company arguing, just put a 30 second radio commercial or a TV commercial in front of them and they'll pick it apart for, for days. They'll argue over the nuances of it. And yet every day, some of these larger brands are, are engaging in millions of experiences with consumers every day. And no one is really measuring the effect of those engagements. You know, no one is really measuring the value of all of those media impressions, which could be millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you know, in media value. So, yeah, I, I see it as, as really more of a historic transition. And that's why companies like Amazon take a completely different view of what a store is for. I believe that their Whole Foods stores and their Amazon Go stores are data collection points, pure and simple. I think that that is the raison d'etre for those stores. I think their Amazon bookstores have nothing to do with selling books. They're to sell technology. They act as a media front for their technology business. They get it. And I think more and more retailers, conventional retailers are starting to get it. So what does this look like on the ground for a retailer that might have 500 stores or more? You have your flagships you have your community stores. Those two Nike stores are an example of each one of those. But then stores all the way down the chain. In this scenario where there's sort of a, a meaningful role for the store to play beyond distribution, is that recognizable even in a lowly location at a mall? Is there is there a thread that's pulled through there? I mean, does it matter overall to the brand? Yes, I do. I think that there should be at least a common thread. In all of those experiences, there needs the essence of the experience needs to be the same. Otherwise, it's a broken promise to the consumer. There's no there's no point in staging a, you know, a house of innovation experience that someone might take part in only to go back to their home in Barrington, Illinois or wherever and have something that's completely dissonant you know, at their, at their local point of distribution. And it's worth noting, I think that Nike o o awakened to that point in 2017 when Mark Parker basically looked at their retail distribution network and said, you know what, guys, most of the places we distribute our products through are suboptimal. Most of them are damaging our brand. They're, they're not enhancing our equity at all. And so he literally either scaled back or divorced almost 30,000 customers, you know, in their network and instead poured their resources into their own physical stores, into their direct to consumer business and and into channels that really enhance their brand. So yes, I do think that there ought to be consistency. But you know, there's one other point Daphne I think is really important. And that is I I think that this pandemic and the growth of businesses like Amazon and and sort of this explosion of growth to new levels is going to really force every and I won't even say retailer here, I'll say business, because you pointed out earlier that, and you're quite right, Amazon really isn't a retailer. Amazon's a platform that can do whatever it wants to do. Whatever it, whatever it sets its gaze upon is its next business model. You know? So they're, they're not a retailer in the traditional sense. Therefore, everyone 
If you're a dentist, you should be worried about Amazon. If you're if you're an insurance adjuster, you should be worried about Amazon. And so every business needs to revisit its fundamental positioning. And I and I said the way I put it is purpose is the new positioning. But I don't mean purpose in the sense of, you know, what's your mission? What are your values? What's your, you know, what what are the causes that you support? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying more literally What's the point? What is the point of your business? If you are the answer to a consumer's question, what is that question? And are you really and truly the exclusive answer to that in your marketplace? And and there can be many consumer questions. You know, where do I get the most entertainment when I shop? Where do I get the best advice? Who supports the kind of social causes or environmental causes that, that I'm concerned about? Or who just sells the best engineered products in the market? Whatever the question is, brands need to figure out, are we the flag bearer for that particular consumer problem? And can we deliver on that promise through the experiences that we animate in our stores? It's funny because, you know, as you talk, I can think of retailers and brands, certain examples jump to mind. And clearly one is REI. I mean, you or Patagonia, those are two businesses who have a very clear understanding of their customer and deliver. I think they sometimes deliver things that the customer didn't even necessarily ask for, but that they, there was, I guess, not enough trust there. I don't know how you would phrase it, that it was sort of a recognizable move. You know, you, Patagonia is a fantastic example. And in the, in the new book, I was, by the way, definitely going to ask about your new book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is a good time to bring that, it up. That was not that was not intended to be a shameless plug, but I'll take advantage no, of it. No, anyway. but let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> the the new book is called Resurrecting Retail because everything has to have two Rs in this business. So Resurrecting Retail, the future of business in a post-pandemic world. And it looks very specifically at this whole unfolding of this new landscape, the new competitive imperatives, and the strategy that I believe is available to brands across categories. And and What I present in the book are 10 archetypal business models that I believe are going to be resilient, not just in the post-pandemic era, but really into the longer term future, because they very specifically answer clear consumer questions and deliver a value that an Amazon or an Alibaba simply cannot. And one of them is the activist, uh, the activist archetype, and that is Patagonia, that a brand that really uses cause as its primary tentpole and invites consumers in, not just for products that they can buy somewhere else, but invites consumers in who feel aligned with that purpose. And it's really that, that activist purpose that powers that brand from the inside. But they do something else too. It's not just that. They also differentiate on product, introducing more recyclable, sustainable, reusable products. And they also differentiate on expertise. They make a point of telling you on their website that they don't just hire anyone off the street who's willing to work retail. They hire people who are also passionate about the cause that's at the center of their brand. So you have a very, very powerful combination there. You have a brand that answers a consumer question very clearly. They dominate in terms of putting that cause at the center of their brand, but they also differentiate to create unique value across the entire experience for customers. And you'll notice that Patagonia is not crying the blues through this pandemic. One of the very few brands that seems to be doing just fine. Thank you. So let's stick with the pandemic. And I don't know if this is something that you would touch on in your book, but 
Do you see any lessons retailers are taking from this year that they really shouldn't be? Lessons that they're taking that they shouldn't be taking. You know, I, I think the one thing, the one thing that, yeah, yeah, potential pitfall here is that many retailers have simply sort of, I think, captioned this whole episode as being a matter of needing to introduce more technology into the experience. That, you know, the problem, as it were, was that we were not, quote unquote, omni-channel enough. And while, you know, yeah, sure, you can make that argument, I think it would be unwise to rush to the other end of the spectrum and just assume that if you can technologize the whole experience, everything will be fine going forward. I don't necessarily believe that. I think some of the greatest joy that we have as consumers when we shop has absolutely nothing to do with technology. I think uh, shopping when it, at its finest is a visceral, sensory, emotional, and, and entertaining experience. And all of that can be achieved without the introduction of unnecessary technology. Yes, do you want to have a technological backbone to the experience so that you are kind of transporting consumers from one end of the experience to the other along these sort of, you know, well-greased rails of technology? Sure. But as soon as you start putting VR booths in your stores and, you know, assuming that augmented reality is going to solve all your problems, uh, you know, or introducing robots for the sake of robots, I think that's a really bad mistake. So no, I don't think we should I don't think we should rush headlong into assuming that technology will solve all our problems. I think what what will solve our problems is creativity, beautiful design and superlative execution of that experience for consumers. That will leave you bulletproof. You know, there seem to be some signs that the consumer might be ready to buy less, pay more, maybe have fewer but nicer things. We'll see if that's really true. But I know that your attitude here, you have both this ability to look into the future, but I remember when you told me that the the bazaar in Istanbul was sort of the epitome of joyful shopping experience. So it's not just about futurism. It's almost like what do consumers and retailers expect of each other? You know, I think that what consumers expect, and, and that's a big question, because our, I think our expectations change. Our expectations change depending on what it is we're shopping for. I think they change depending on the price of what we're shopping for or the rarity of what we're shopping for. But generally speaking, I think it's, it's fair to say that the dividing wall, the dividing partition between entertainment and commerce is, is crumbling now. And, and some of that is being furthered by brands like, like Alibaba that really look at the consumer's time spent online as being this mix of commerce and, and entertainment at all times. We're not dividing between the two. And so I definitely think that consumers are looking for better content. You know, we're, we're certainly not sitting around saying, gosh, I wish brands would advertise to me more. You know, I think that we're we're feeling that every day. I mean, you know, how many of us feel that creepy sort of um, you know entity looking over our shoulder and knowing what we're 
we're talking about, what we're doing, what we're searching for online, and then we're being retargeted with ads. But I do think that there's a tremendous hunger out there for content. I think there's a, a hunger for community, I, especially in the middle of a pandemic. I think that we have really felt the need to associate with people who share our values, share our beliefs, share our concerns. And, and share our joys, you know, our, our joy and enthusiasm over certain products. I think we're looking for culture. What we're not looking for are more products and more advertising, to your point, you know. So, yeah, if you, if you can caption that under, we want more meaning in our lives, I, I believe that. And look, there are other people at the end of the spectrum who are just really all about conspicuous consumption and, and nothing will change that. And they will carry on and, and more power to them. But I do think that a large swath of society has probably reflected on this pandemic, reflected on what matters, what really has value in their lives, and will emerge from this perhaps more conscious and conscientious consumers. That's my hope anyway. I feel like I'm hearing of this emerging or evidence of this emerging. So I'm definitely going to keep an eye on this. But that kind of reminds me of the way we wrapped things up last year. And you talked about leadership. I'm thinking this year, in addition to you know the public health crisis itself, there's been social, racial, economic upheaval, it's been intense. It's been rough, heartbreaking. As the world hopefully, you know, enters a time of recovery, say, what do you think retailers, their teams, their boards, what kind of roles do they have to play in a world that may be looking for leadership from business as well as their, you know, political leaders? Well, what we do know is that faith in government, faith in our political leadership, and faith in, in religion, frankly, has dropped precipitously since the 1950s. We've just seen this continual downward arc of, of trust in those fundamental social institutions. And at the same time, we also know that brands, yes, are stepping into that vacuum and picking up the slack. You know, if you just look at uh, some of the very difficult conversations a brand like Nike, for example, has has perpetuated and confronted issues that they have confronted. I think it is an important responsibility. And I'm not suggesting here that every brand needs to become an activist or they need to, to, to just troll around for the cause du jour, because I think that's disingenuous as well. But I do think that there's an important role for brands to play. And and I think that if if brands set their sight on being responsible in that effort, you know, understanding that they do have the potential to change society and being very responsible in doing that, I, I think that that's uh, I think that's vitally important. So yeah, I think that we could, if if we're if we're, you know, if we do take the time to reflect, we could emerge out of this a better industry than we went into it. Some of the old growth forest is dying off and there's no easy way to get around that. We're going to lose a lot of brands. But by the same token, Daphne, I think you would agree that if you look at the list of casualties thus far, A, there aren't a tremendous number of surprises on the list. And secondly, you know, I don't necessarily think that five years from now, we're going to be mourning the loss of many of these brands. So it's old growth forest, it's dying off, my hope is that we have green shoots of new creative 
ingenious entrepreneurs that bring new business models to the market. I hope that we can reflect on the interconnectedness of the world that we live in and therefore bring attention to the, to the, the nature of supply chains and that, it, you know, one thing that happens in one part of the world definitely affects people in another part of the world, especially people that are making $95 a month to make the clothing on our backs. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a huge opportunity to reinvent how we do business, why we do it, and the impact that it has on this planet. Well, Doug, I feel like that's probably a good place to wrap it up. I really appreciate you joining me today for this discussion. I'd like you to repeat the name of your upcoming book, Resurrecting Retail, the full title. Sure. Yeah. Resurrecting Retail, the future of business in a post-pandemic world. And it's going to be dropping this April. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. April can't come soon enough, by the way, because I think by April we'll have made that much more progress getting away from the ravages of 2020. And in the meantime, I will be turning to you whenever I need to get that sort of meaningful perspective on a retail sector or, or a particular retailer. Well, I always pick up the phone when I see your name, Daphne. I know you do, even early in the morning, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's a pleasure. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, subscribe, and like our show wherever you get your podcasts. 